0: This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 3, Beyond the Studio East Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Since this podcast is hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. So if there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in some headphones before you listen. Before we get started on this week's episode, you may have noticed that this is part two, which means it is the second half of a two-part conversation. We divide up the episodes if they go a little longer than our usual time, but are too good to cut down. In part one of the conversation, we learned more about Minku's background and talked about our history with him. We talked about how he's navigating the New York art scene and building relationships with galleries. And we started discussing misconceptions versus the realities of being an artist. If this is your first time listening, definitely go back and listen to that episode because it at least will give you some context because we're starting in the middle here. We are about to dive into the rest of the episode, which just gets even more candid and pretty vulnerable too so thank you so much for listening we're really excited to get into this conversation right after
1: this brief message from our sponsor hey it's nicole I want to tell you about Change Lab, a long form interview podcast that explores the transformative power of creativity. Hosted by Lauren M. Buckman, the show is produced by Art Center College of Design, a global leader in art and design education. ChangeLab tells extraordinary true stories about regular people living their life through the lens of creativity, the kind you won't see on the news or read about online. ChangeLab guests are artists, designers, and entrepreneurs from diverse sectors, including popular culture, high art, Silicon Valley, corporate America, and the emerging field of social innovation. ChangeLab just began its seventh season, which is dedicated to amplifying Black voices in a conversation around creating concrete, measurable actions toward a more diverse and inclusive art and design community at ArtCenter and beyond. The world is one giant nation of creatives. ChangeLab's objective is to shine a spotlight on the little and big dramas that comprise the artistic life of people who can't help but make something where before there was nothing. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy ChangeLab wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: I also am curious kind of how you've been navigating through 2020 and how you're thinking about approaching your next year of work. You had touched on something earlier with talking about kind of transitioning into going full time as an artist, and I feel like so often that experience, it's like, that's your, your full focus until it happens where you're like, I'm just trying to hustle. I'm just trying to get to be the artist. And then once you get to the artist part or, you know, get to that goal, then you're like, okay, how can I make this sustainable? How can I do this in a way that's healthy for me as a person, but also, you know, has a good balance within my practice. And I appreciated that you had said that cause I, I definitely could relate to that experience. Um, I was, Wondering how, how you've been navigating your career through the pandemic, through just this really insane year, and how it's affecting how you're planning for the next year.
2: Right. Yeah, actually, it's a heavy question. Because uh, pandemic uh, first kind of psychologically, and emotionally really like frightened me. So it got huge effects on me because I think although my look of the work is a little cold and methodical and clinical, like I think my works are pretty emotional and very sensitive. So my works are affected in the look of it and I start to make work that I used to do when I was a lot more unstable or a lot more insecure. So for example, I revisited my old paintings and reworked on it because I just couldn't do the same work, you know, same kind of work. So it affected me the first few months, but then like the financially, like some of my peers had the financial hit like before me because they all, like most of them had a second job, you know? So they were all, I, I've been hearing like, here and there, how they're struggling, how much they're stressed. But I was kind of okay for the first a like, few months. But then, like seeing, like oh, like seeing my personal like our sales are affected. Although I've been getting inquiries, like you know, my price wasn't as like affordable as it used to be. So people are like doubt, and I'm like directly observing that and also you know just like seeing you know like gallery sale not performing as well as i expected and like seeing that i'm like holy shit i start to freak out a little bit so yeah like so it's like so the lesson for me uh, at least in terms of a sustaining career and sustaining the practice wise is that i think yeah like i use i'm kind of an all-in guy you know i give a like, I, I'm very aggressive uh, investor in my practice. Like, I, like, give out, like, everything I got financially, emotionally, whatever, into reinvesting. And I'm like, wow, maybe next year or this time forward, I better be careful because I almost lost my studio <laughs> a few times. And I, and I relocated my apartment, you know. Like, now I have, like, a... Like two roommates, you know. It's like it's crazy, you know. Like life did change quite a bit, you know. So like now I'm like, I think I'll be like less idealistic, you know. I always been a idealistic, pure optimist, you know. But I'm like, wow, like you know, like literally, like pandemic. It's not like no one's control, you know. And I used to be like, oh, you know, like those are the those are the excuses for older people who, you know, didn't have enough, like, whatever. But I'm like, yeah, no kidding. That's like, there were, you know, it's truth. It always been happening, right? The economic depression or like health issue. It's not necessarily up to you, you know, like health just collapse whenever, you know, or the economy collapse. So now, like, I think it is my first kind of a, ever experience in my life where something that was totally out of my control kind of happened on me i mean there was a like certain minor thing that kind of shitty things happened to me that i had to cope with but you know it was a kind of um, you know like this is my issue but now it's like everyone's struggling so i'm like holy shit next year i need to think about things a little more in conservative way which will have some virtue and which i might have to adapt to it but, uh, yeah, I hope to take a lot of risk next year too because I think, you know, taking risks really helped me kind of, you know, being ambitious and ready to lose everything and, you know, yeah, doing certain things, certain scale of a project that, like, I know my friends would never do because it's absurd, you know? Yeah, but uh, I think also there's something that I wanted to be frank about myself through this podcast is that... uh. Like I've been lucky enough to be super kind of aggressive on reinvesting on myself whenever I make a sale or whatever because knowing that worst case scenario I can like move back to my mom's place kind of thing you know my mom's my mom lives in New York and then I actually lived with her for like three years when I first came back to New York but it's miserable it's like a four-hour round trip commute to Manhattan it's like so miserable and depressing, but but I'm like, yeah, well, it's still a grateful thing that I can just stay within the kind of New York City area and, you know, not worry about the rent. But, you know, I almost did that during the pandemic, too, almost did. But, you know, some miracles happened because I, you know, I like castle and I, you know, like kind of uh, do certain things that that I kind of expect certain kind of rewards for me. And, you know, even during the pandemic, honestly, Jesus, like, even during the pandemic, I had enough sale to kind of get by, you know. And also Nicole and Dave is one of the example, too. One of a great example, you know. Like, this is technical uh, pandemic, too, you know. And, yeah, and I think there has been a few people where, you know, in crucial moments, I get this financial but also spiritual, you know. Is it almost like the same, or if not, more impact? Uh, where like, professor is buying your work in school? Like my uh, alumni for Dave was a uh, one year ahead of me, like and like he really you know gave me a huge support you know. So now I'm like more inclined to make big work with more risk because obviously I think like people can see too like if you put more risk or more into it, people will react to it, you know? Yeah, so I think I've been getting reaffirmation from, you know, my friends, collectors, that, oh, yeah, like, no matter how hard things are, the the real sincerity and authenticity paid off, you know? So, yeah, like, it's an amazing um, reminder that, no matter how hard time it is, as long as you stay focused and be optimistic, and do whatever you can best with the conviction, yeah, I think um, most people can survive. You know, yeah, with the hope.
1: Yeah, I think this is such such an a time and example of having to really lean on and and rely on our community in different ways and. I feel like you've touched on this at a few moments whether you know friends from school that you're still collaborating with or even you know gallerists or collectors that you've been in contact with for years before you know an opportunity comes to fruition and so we're, we're so excited like Minku said uh, my partner and I just invested in one of Minku's pieces and are really um, grateful that we're, we're able to do that and you know just so excited to be able to live with your work we've been big fans and you know we we both have a a history and my partner Dave also went to to Micah with us, so I know that you and and Minku, were were also friends. So it's it's exciting that you know we get to kind of support each other in these different ways throughout the span of our careers. But I feel like you're describing really well the the sort of the psychological impact of this year. And you know I'm curious too whether whether this will you know result in in a a move for, you know, for us to be a little more, more conservative or more risk averse or on the the contrary to, you know, be willing to take more risks because we kind of recognize that, you know, things are, are not guaranteed. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how this will kind of impact our collective decision-making going forward. But I know I can relate to that space too, you know, the, kind of realization that even these things that we thought were really stable, right? Like our health, <laughs> the world around us, um our, you know, our job security, all these things um are really not to be taken for granted. And so, yeah, there's I guess there's some opportunity in that. If if it's not guaranteed, well then what does that mean and what would we do differently if anything? And so it's interesting to think about, but I also feel like we've seen and heard a little bit about the just the growth that you've experienced this last year and um, I know we're talking to you now from your studio in Brooklyn, which you've been in for, is it le- just a year and a half or a little less than two years?
2: This exact studio, like year and eight months. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was uh, building next to it for like around two years or more. So I've been in this area, like Brooklyn Navy Yard, for like about four years.
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk too about just the growth that you've seen in that time and what your experience has been um, within your studio. And then also, we've been kind of talking about this in different ways, but you know, some of the the unexpected challenges um, apart from this year that you've encountered, or maybe things that you've had to start saying no to, even as your career has grown and kind of more opportunities have started to come about, or even related to your your studio space, just the size of your studio has grown. What, you know what has that kind of done to to your work?
2: Yeah. So first of all, like I so like about uh, four years ago, I I was sharing about a thousand square foot space with four artists. And they're all like uh, about a uh, 10 year older than me, uh, because I, you know my studio is pretty nice area uh, of Brooklyn, like pretty close to Manhattan, like near Dumbo, and like it's like there are, there are a lot of artists, few artists here that are successful. It has kind of a nice like a gritty but pretty high tech mix of uh, flavor in this commu- in this area, so. Yeah, like I was sharing, I had a small like, corner, a small section, about like 3, 4, like four fifty square foot. Shared by four artists who are like about 10 years older than me. They all had a like, little baby. And I was like grinding over there because uh, I felt like I am type of an artist that I need to have a very specific kind of uh, environment. Like I don't like a lot of dust on the floor or dust in general because like I don't want I want to keep my oil painting like pristine surface-wise and whatnot. Yeah, there are a lot of things that I kind of uh, wish that I had my own studio. So in that other space, I like worked so hard and as soon as I made the money, I was like adios and like got my own space, which worked great too. But my parents, my family and friends were a little shocked because I got a like good deal. I mean I was like, paying a you know, fair price for what it was, you know. It was still like expensive but fair and I, I could have like sustained for years if I stayed there. <laughs> but I, I moved this space which is about like 11, 1200 square foot and it's, like super, so much nicer like, with the view like a lot of sunlight and like making this move like sometimes I regret it a lot because I'm like wow with this amount of money I could have had so much less stress and this anxiety you know because I'm like dropping like grands, like you know like there's a month where I spend like five digits every month just for expenses you know And that goes for years. And it's like six digits, you know, one year just for expenditure, you know. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, what am I doing? You know, I I, I should have stayed super low because I seeing certain artists that are like really like kind of getting international. And like when I go to their studio, like I'm like, holy shit, it's like super humble, you know. And even like some like actually successful artists, their studio is humble, like certain artists, their studios are a little like swanky and a little like a gallery like but like I just got like, I, I guess like, I was more familiar slash I kind of wanted that kind of environment so now I'm kind of uh, taking the responsibility that yeah if you want to live that kind of a lifestyle or that kind of um, yeah lifestyle then there's a con- consequences you gotta either like kill yourself work your ass off and get so much stress with overheads or you can live little like relaxed life and with the lower overhead you know and that's yeah. something that I am thoroughly experiencing and learning too like my friend I have some really good friends you know from Micah who gives me you know, one works at Whitney Museum one one like works for like big time galleries and one Guys, like a designer, independent designer, but they always kind of give me a perspective, and you know, like I, if I listen to them, I probably should have been more conservative. But you know, like I think I'm taking my own consequences and taking responsibility. But now I'm more open to, you know, moving, relocating studio. But but I think I'm working hard enough that I am still optimistic that I, I am going to be here for like a few more years and I, I want to like expand it even more but you know a cheaper neighborhood or something you know but nothing is guaranteed 100% that's something I realize, you know like there are many moments where like certain collectors are like oh we're going to buy XNXX and, and then sometimes they just disappear you know so like some of those experiences are traumatic, you like count on, whoa, like I'm gonna get this X amount, and you get all hyped up for weeks and, you know, months, and like, and then you get like so exhausted, and then they just like kind of uh, go silence, you know. So I'm like, wow, yeah, nothing is guaranteed for sure, and you can really never count, uh, like, what, like there's a saying, right, like never count uh, an X before it hatches or something, right.
1: So. Oh, yeah. Oh, Not yeah. cutting your chickens before yeah, they hatch.
2: Exactly. <laughs> 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 I always see up. Exactly. Yeah.
1: No, it's so true, though. I, I feel like what you're describing is another example of just taking a risk and, and reinvesting in yourself with regard to growing your studio. But And so it, it does require a bit of a leap of faith because yeah. you are you know, you don't have the guarantee, but you're, you know, you're kind of making that commitment to yourself and your work and, you know, the potential for, you know, it to sort of grow into the space. And so I know we've talked about this with other artists too, just kind of like, at what point do you start to make some of those leaps? And, you know, maybe you're kind of operating at the limit for a while, um, but at a certain point, you do need to kind of cross over that threshold. And so it does require risk. And so it sounds like you, you know, have been willing to do that just the collector story makes me think of the the dating relationship metaphor again it's like sometimes you get ghosted by (laughs) by collectors even and Uh, there's nothing you can do about that
2: either yeah and it's like tough because you know something like that is really directly involved with your living or your life kind of plan you know yeah there was a incredible lesson I really got affirmed in college at like you know, my, like my friend always gave me the same idioms. Never like, expect it until you actually get it and achieve it. Don't just like, pretend like it already happened. And I always been very reckless in terms of risk taking and kind of like expecting certain thing, you know. But uh, as time goes and, and as I and my friends and, and I become more adult, living an adult life, I'm like, yeah, like, you know, if you fail, you're gonna fail miserably. But I still, you know, like, you know, like I still do a lot of uh, personal investment that it's little, you know, not absurd, but uh, it's been paying off though, you know, it's been paying off, but it's just a lot of stress, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it's very important to, to have a conviction and uh, give it a shot at your full capacity uh, because you know I wanted to also share the fact that you know like when I was like struggling like on Instagram you don't see the struggle necessarily I mean there are artists who share their struggle yeah. but I've been, one, I've been one of the people who kind of tend to show the positive or you know good side of me I'm probably a typical case of that like I have a lot of other struggle but I don't necessarily show that and some of the struggle is like when i was commuting at my mom's place i like i couldn't even go to bars because i i couldn't get a like single beer you know i mean maybe i could have but then i had to like walk home or if i don't drink like a beer for like five times then i can get like a cadmium red or like a cobalt blue, you know instead of some yeah. cheaper brand you know so you know that kind of a sacrifice i think is like Incredibly important, you know, sacrifice or like the self negotiation, you know. And I think I've been doing that extremely thoroughly, you know. Like, it's just the Uber is example. a taxi, like my friends would take taxi. Like my other art friends, right? Like my younger art friends, like you know, they would drink and then they take taxi home and they complain that they're broke. And you know, I'm broke, but I mean, I. Maybe can take taxi, but then I'm not going to be able to eat out during my lunch break. So at like 2 a.m., like I take a train and wait for like half an hour, 40 minutes for a train. And then like I like it takes me home like, you know, like super long time. But I've been actually really doing that. And I've been like like grinding that. Oh, shit, this time will be over sometime soon. And it kind of, I guess, kind of is over. But still now, like I mean, I can take a cat, but yesterday I went to a like, frame shop to frame a like, few pieces. But I walked like 40 minutes, you know. So even to save like three bucks so that I can use, you know, I can like, work with like a top quality framer versus some like, cheaper framer, you know. So I think that kind of, uh, I mean, of course, I'm uh, like a big spender, but I I save in certain area so that I can spend big, you know yeah and I think that's very important for me you know and I'm sure that's something certain people can apply to their life you know not complain that they're broke if you really think about it yeah like you cannot you don't have to take cab at like 3am you can like walk home for an hour exercise and you will get sobered up you know and yeah just like there are things you can do I think to make it happen you know Even, like, 20 bucks, you can get, like, a nice piece of a notebook and a pen, and you can make, like, 50 nice drawings, and you can sell them and make, like, 1,000 bucks out of it or something, you know? Or, like, more, you know? Yeah, so...
0: Yeah, I think that's such a relatable story as an artist of just reinvesting in your work as much as possible because I think from the outside looking in, someone might think, like, oh, you're selling this painting, this piece of art, it's making you this amount of money, therefore you have that amount of money. But so much of it is reimbursing yourself for materials and time, and then also putting the money down towards the next project that you want to do, and now you're able to fund it. It's so relatable. Do you have any final thoughts uh, before we wrap it up of anything that you wanted to share? And definitely let our listeners know where they can find you online either th- on instagram or on your website
2: you can see my work at my website i have some high-res images at like minku.com and uh, on instagram i have like behind the scene or like work that i like or like other artists work or museums i go to or my work on instagram too you can check it out there and, yeah, I don't know, like, there might be something that could be helpful to the listener. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, there are, like, a lot on my mind. We covered yeah, them. okay, <laughs> hopefully I, you know, spoke something that could be helpful.
0: Oh, yeah, I just always want to ask in case we, uh, in case we, like, didn't cover a specific topic that you really wanted to mention.
2: Oh, now, actually, there's one thing that I want to quickly kind of uh, mention is that, uh, you know, I've been thinking about, like, artist loyalty. Like uh, I was talking about this with few people lately, and I've been listening to your previous podcast. And certain people are talking about the copyrights and like artist resale rights and all that. And that's something that I spoke with, you know, Greg, you know, you know, you know, my ex roommate Greg. And we were talking about all, how it's not not fair for artists. I mean, like the visual artist, the painter, for example, you make a painting and it doesn't have any like equity value, you know? So for example, I sold uh, like uh, my big big painting for like like low thousand, like very like few thousand that now would worth like, you know, like 20 grand or more. And I, you know, I get nothing. Like, I mean, like maybe 10 years later, 20 years later, it might be like 100,000. And I I hope the family will never resell it. But if they do for any reason, then, you know, like I get like nothing. I mean, which is like, which has been happening for like decades, like centuries. But, and I do know that a lot of, uh, you know, advocates for artists, right, are working towards that. But I do feel like it's something very, very important, actually, that I was a little hesitant to bring this up. But no matter what regulations or registration barriers there is, but I do think that it would be beneficial for the culture and also the collector-artist relationship and also the, the quality of the works that are being made uh, for the next generation or current generation artists because I know that that is something that a lot of artists, even like myself, are in doubt or something in mind while making i mean not all the time but certain times i'm like yeah like i'm I'm spending this much amount of time and effort in my soul and it gets sold and sometimes i don't know who it is going to you know if the gallery sell i just don't never know you know and hopefully that collector is a genuinely loving collector who will you know And I mean, like, whether if it's genuinely loving art collector or, you know, speculator, whatever, you know, if I know that I will have some loyalty, then I will, like, work my ass off every painting. And I actually, don't get me wrong, I I do put every soul and sweat into small paintings, too. But kind of an origin of a certain working method, and for me, was, like, yeah, I'm going to put, X amount of talent and X amount of skill and labor knowing that that's all I will be ever getting you know whereas actually I'm speaking about this because I did talk some really deep down uh, honest conversation with my designer friend who makes like a very extreme rare set of uh, typeface he put like years of uh, hard work and he released this one and only best that's like one typeset is what he designed for a few years, and that's so perfect, so classic and he will get like you know like he can get millions after years you know and if i if I have the same system of loyalty, then you know I'd be happy to make like five paintings a year or like a two painting a year and just uh, put every hair of a detail and I will, like, fix thousand times versus, like, ten times, you know, into making, like, super masterpiece and be content with making, like, a two-year work, even as a young artist, you know? So I think, you know, a lot of criticism with, like, younger artists for contemporary art market mechanism that, oh, like, oversaturation, oversaturation over with the painting, shitty paintings, over. Population with you know overproduction issues, there is a reason for that because like uh, you know there is an ultimate kind of a corrupt war you know however you want to put it. I think it could be better you know, and and you know, I'm not an expert in with the lawmaking and some artists I know that's are super pessimistic that it will never happen. But I do. I mean I hope that in the next like a few years or decades something will happen even for the unique art, you know? They're like, oh, it's only for the multiples, you know? But I mean, ex- I, mean I know, I, I I think that there are already people advocating the same kind of uh, opinion that, yeah, if if the, we set the system where artists get the loyalty for, for unique work, then there will be abundance of uh, good work and less amount of work because artists need to sustain their, you know? career by (laughs) like selling like few thousand dollar pieces for like 10 of them to you know yeah make the rent versus making like a masterpiece and kind of relying on that quality of that production you know so that's something you know i want to kind of throw it out and just like let the listeners or you guys to kind of take from it you know because that's my hope actually I think if whoever solves it, I will benefit a lot because I'm gonna start. you know. I think like, to be honest, that's been part of my sustaining strategy. If any strategy, that was my strategy. Like, make many small works that are kind of affordable to people and you know like, like I've been through so many tra- traumatic experience in college and grad school where I put actually probably one of the better works I've ever made for like nothing. And then I will never be able to see them some cases or, yeah, or be benefited from that. Because oftentimes those works are not properly documented, you know, or I had any budget to document them either, you know. Yeah, it's all taken by a shitty camera I had. So it's like super blurry and whatnot, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's it's so interesting, and I think especially in this moment when we're having all these conversations about you know creating an art world that really works for artists, it's it seems like an issue that really should be at the forefront. And um, even you know throughout this conversation, we've been talking so much about investing in ourselves and our work through materials, through kind of making daily sacrifices to you know be able to put more time into the studio, and so. I mean, we are kind of, you know, speaking about the just the personal level of investment involved. But, you know, you're you're really contributing to the longevity and success of your career if you, you know, get to a point where your work is being resold at auction, for example. And so to think that, you know, as an artist, you wouldn't really see any, you know, any of that value is really does stunt the growth and the potential for sustainability. And so we know there is a precedent for it. You know, there are other countries that have sort of started to set this bar. So it's not completely unrealistic, but it does seem like it's going to take a lot in order to get to that place. And I'm I'm really glad that we're talking about this here. And I'm just kind of quickly wondering if these are conversations that you have have thought about having or you know feel at all comfortable bringing up around collectors or galleries in conversations around selling your work
2: right so like I did talk about this same issue with my aged uh, artists who are starting out and getting like you know popular in the art world and they have a varied opinions about it but Ultimately, it's the same kind of a point of view. We need some kind of a resale, right? Or some kind of like equity invested in our work, you know? So if our work, if our value goes up, then we have certain kind of a stake, like a stock stake on it, you know? Then it's not only good for sustaining the practice and uh, making a better quality work with the pure soul and heart, but also, it is good for the collector and uh, artist relationship. Because like, to be totally frank, you know, like when I was more naive, I had a, a hundred, a thousand percent gratitude for collectors, you know, when they buy work, even for super under price, because I just needed got them dollars to drink and eat. But now, even if like, it's like, like a lot of money, thousands to ten thousands, I've, have kind of this weird feeling that oh that you know i know that i'm gonna keep make work and keep make better work and i know this work's gonna be valued like five times ten times like who knows like hundred times whatever hopefully i mean hopefully not even because like i would feel kind of weird about it i mean of course i'd be happy for them to kind of own something very valuable with less money but like you know it's kind of a weird thing if it's like something totally different like stock or something that doesn't have an emotional attachment i would be okay well good for them like resell it and make money but it's like my vision and my soul my dna in this work that potentially i'm getting taken advantages of or at least that's how it could feel to any artist you know so so I feel like if there's a win-win-win relationship system that's set up, then I'll be like, yeah, just please take my best work so that you're going to benefit and I'm going to benefit. And I will promise you that, you know, I'm going to work my ass off that we can all benefit from this. Like versus, uh, you know, let me try to, you know, sell you like less good work so I can keep the better work to myself or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. there are certain pieces that I've been not selling because I know that it's very important to me. And I don't want to ever be in a situation where I feel like, oh shit, I sold it for like nothing and regretting it. And not even regretting it, just like I don't want to even like, get into this weird relationship with collectors or like, wherever situation, you know? Where I'm, like, I feel like I'm taking advantage of, which no one likes, you know? And especially, I don't want to feel that to my supporter or collectors, you know, because uh, once again, I'm kind of a optimist, so I always kind of uh, have a good faith on people who approach me, and then I try to make the most out of it, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I think if the, there's a structure that a win-win-win. For the culture and relationship between the art lovers and collectors, investors, makers, then I really do think it will benefit everyone and the art biodiversity will be a lot more active, dynamic and a lot more healthier world, you know, less, less sarcasm, less cynicism, less like mockery world you know now it kind of has become that way because because of the kind of a toxic cycle or this inevitable chain system that we are into yeah overproduction i i feel bad but you know honestly that's the only way you can survive you know i mean i don't want to say only way but that's one of the uh, popular way or even like you know that's like one of the like natural way for people yeah, I, I I mean, at least from my experience, it's been like that. So, yeah, I cannot wait. Like, I, I can promise, I mean, like, I don't know if I can, like, promise to everyone, like, right now. Like, if, if I can make, like, five painting and if there's loyalty, I might actually, like, do that, like, right now, you know? I will change the painting, like, 100 times, and take, like, 5, 10 years. And then let me please only let it out, um, like, everything I got in there, you know? Yeah, so if any strategy, Amanda kind of asked me in the beginning, there are a lot of strategies for me to sustain myself, you know. And the strategy, I always, every time I think about it, when I sell, before I sell, when I kind of plan for production, I'm like, how much time do I want to give? How much of a talent, personal reserved vision do I want to share, you know? Because I have this like a 20-year trajectory, you know, I have like 20, 30, 40-year vision Where I'm like, yeah, like this career, if my work is this amount value, I'm going to do this thing And if I work becomes this much, you know, like, I mean, that's kind of a terrible, <laughs> it's very <laughs> terrible kind of a um, setup But that has been kind of um, set up according to the the reality of the art market, you know and then at the same time, I got to you know, I'm super aware of uh, overproduction. I always have been prolific, even before I was uh, aware of the the market value and money thing. Because, you know, like I love like Picasso, like Sterling Ruby, very like, productive artists, you know, who creates like everything, like sculpture, installation, photo drawings, collage. Like I do, I do want to do all of those, but you know but uh, I mean within what's available and what's realistic for at the given moment, you can do that you know yeah, I mean you know like honestly, if anything like I, I, I just this is the most important thing actually the artist loyalty. like I feel like I would have sold a lot less less ambitious work to other people if I just could have lived off the loyalty of you know. The work that I made, like, you know, so for example, a lot of collectors and a lot of friends, a lot of professors asked me, what happened? You know, what happened, Minku, like you used to make amazing figure painting, <laughs> you used to make this like, really intricate pieces, you know, like wh- what happened to you and why do you just make this line and why do you do this, you know? And of course, there's a reason why I do this, but uh, in the back of my mind, like, I'm like, yeah, like the, the soul and sweat I put into the work I deserve, I, I don't ever want to get, like, feel like I get technical advantages, whether the collector intended or not, you know, so that experience is so traumatic and so sad, so it's just kind of, um you know, like, kind of, yeah, like, you know, I don't want to, like, say, scarred me, but it kinds of, terrifies me even thinking about that and I've been doing my best not to think about it and just to make the best work. So I'm not, you know, I'm not doing really my best to be open-minded and optimistic that, you know, like a lot of great-minded people like you guys and a lot of uh, activists, you know, I love the the Amy Whitaker from NYU. A lot of other people who are keen on this issue will fix it. I'm pretty optimistic about it. Somehow we're gonna make this work, but no. in the meantime, I can semi-strategize it by, you know, making sure that I, you know, get by, and in the meantime, really invest in making the good work. And I think that's a dangerous part too, like for younger artists. I strategize a little bit in terms of production, not in terms of like, you know, like other part. But in terms of at least the studio creative production, I think about it. But the only, like, on, if any advice, if I may, to younger artists or people who are jumping into the artistic process, is I think longevity wise, you gotta pay attention to the quality and, like, the why you make it, you know? I mean, of course you make it because, like, for a thousand reasons, but as long as you are happy and if you, ch- feel challenge, and if the work uh aligned to your vision i think in the long run people will be able to tell it and i mean at least i can tell if certain work has a bone to it or not and i you know and i I i'm for me like i i i i i'm a baby collector I, i buy like little things here and there or trade but uh I think it's a very, like, I think keen collectors know if the work is really made just for the sake of getting by, you know, then it's worth being criticized as uh, overproduction or mass production, whatever. But, you know, it's a fine balance. And I think it's a balance process, is something that I'm always like, adjusting and unfortunately kind of um, taking into consideration in my uh, studio practice, you know.
1: Yeah, you're someone who's always I thinking long term and has been just very committed to their studio practice. Um, it's it's one of the things that we really admire about you and your work. And so I think that's that's good advice. Um, you're a great example of that. And you know we're all trying to make our work within the the structures and systems that we live in. But you know meanwhile, um, important to be having these conversations about you know, what longevity and what, you know, sustainability and investment in our own work could, could really look like. So thank you again, Minko, for for bringing up all these topics and just for sharing your story and being so candid. Um, we really appreciate you and are, are so excited we got to talk with you for the podcast.
2: Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, it was really fun. And I hope this was interesting or helpful in any way. But um, yeah, thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I hope thank you, you guys
2: keep flourishing. And keep expanding.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you. And same to you. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways.
2: Yeah. I'm sorry, I think I had 100% had a sugar rush, and I think I was like, no, stop talking. So, yeah, I think I got too much sugar, damn it.
1: Oh my gosh, while we're waiting, I should show you the, pic- the painting that, um, yes. that Dave and I got. Let me see if I can pull it up.
0: Yes, when I was looking at Minku's website earlier, I was showing his work to Mike, and I was like, I would be so happy to look at any one of these pieces every day
1: we are so excited here
0: we go do you know where you want to put it
1: oh yeah right right behind me here
0: (laughs) so i'll get to i'll get to look at it every (laughs) time we
1: record (laughs) my new zoom background
0: i love it